The rest of you that are waiting, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to use the notes that are in the bulletin, you can do that as well. For those of you that are visiting us the first time, we're going through the book of Ephesians. We started chapter 1, verse 1, and nine months later we're in chapter 5. We're going to pick up verses 8 through 10 today, and we're studying the book of Ephesians because it's one of the most fundamental epistles or letters in the New Testament that talks about what a church is to be. What is a church supposed to be doing? What are its priorities? So we've been learning from God through the Apostle Paul as we're trying to lay the foundation here at Grace Bible Fellowship what a church is, why it exists. And we are picking up in chapter 5. We're in the second part of the book of Ephesians. The second part of the book of Ephesians, just so you know, is that part where the Apostle Paul is giving practical application. He spent the first three chapters talking about foundational principles or theology or our position in Christ, our salvation in Christ, and now he's talking about practical application of those truths for the Christian. So as a result, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, you're going to see a lot of commands or imperatives. Paul is saying, because you know this to be true about you because of your relationship with Christ, therefore, live accordingly. Live like a Christian if you claim to be a Christian. That's his point. So we get about 40 commands in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. And we're getting commands in every area of life, by the way. By the time we're done at the end of chapter 6 in Ephesians, Paul will have covered every area of your life, no matter your age or your status in life, be it you're single or married or divorced, so on and so forth. Uh, there is something there for you regarding God's will in this wonderful book. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Actually, I'm just going to read first, starting at verse 7 because that's what we read last week, just to give us the context. And I'm going to read verses 7 and following. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, Christian, is who he's talking to, do not be partakers with them. Last week we heard that that was unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus Christ. Don't be partakers with them. Don't partner with them. For, why? For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So just so you know, the main command or imperative in this little passage here is that command where Paul says to walk. And he says to walk in the light. And that's why for the title I just put to walk in the light. Christian, we need to walk in the light. That's what God has commanded us to do. Walk in the light. When I was in seminary uh, a few years ago, I had a professor who had the privilege of teaching one of their students, and this student was the son-in-law of George Lucas. And the son-in-law of George Lucas was married to the daughter of George Lucas. Yeah. So the son-in-law of George Lucas apparently was a Christian. This is profound. But anyway, so he was a Christian studying for the ministry, and on a regular basis, George Lucas's daughter or his wife would come to class because you could do that, attend and... So the professor that I had was telling me about George Lucas and what he was like. He is, George Lucas is not a Christian. As a matter of fact, when he was George Lucas was making Star Wars, uh, he was a, an avowed New Ager to the core, which has a lot of influence from uh, Hinduism. And so you actually see that in uh, the Star Wars movies, uh, teaching and philosophy of New Ageism and even Hinduism. And one of the dominant truths that was in at least the first movie that was made 
was that George Lucas categorizes every human being into one of two categories. That's it. You've got those who are in the light and those who are in darkness, right? Because, of course, Darth Vader was... Or however he does that. He was... He epitomized the dark side, didn't he? He was the quintessential uh, manifestation of darkness or evil. And if you were on the side of Darth Vader, then you were in the darkness, on the dark side, and everybody else was in the light. And even though George Lucas was not a Christian and he was getting this from New Age philosophy, he was actually right on that point. Because that's what the Bible says. There are only two kinds of people. There are only two categories. That is it. That's what Jesus said, Paul said, the Old Testament taught, the New Testament teaches. And that is actually the theme of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, particularly verses 1 through 17. That's a whole unit that goes together. We're going to see that. And Paul keeps repeating again and again to the Christian, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are saints and those who are not saints. There are believers and unbelievers. There are Christians and those who are not Christians. There are those who know Jesus Christ personally and those who do not. That is it. There is no middle ground. Very clear from the, what, what Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1-17. through 17. And you know, as Christians, we need to be reminded of that. Because we don't often think of people that way, do we? On a regular basis. We don't look at people and think of them and evaluate them and their state of being in terms of these clear spiritual terms. I go into the supermarket and the checker behind the check stand is your thought, I wonder if this woman is a believer or an unbeliever. Is that the first thing that crosses your mind? Or is it, boy, she's slow. <laughs> or maybe it's even nicer and you think, oh, she's a real nice lady. She's a great checker. And that's, your, that's the extent of your evaluation of this woman as opposed to, is she a believer or not a believer? Does this woman know the Lord Jesus Christ or not? And we could be thinking the same thing about people we work with, people we interact with, our neighbors, Next door neighbor, Fred. Oh, yeah, he's a nice guy. Keeps his lawn nice and trimmed. And that's the extent of our evaluation. Or is it, yeah, our neighbor Fred, he doesn't know Jesus Christ. He's lost. He is an unbeliever. And that's it. You've got two categories. Well, that's Paul's frame of mind. That's the way he thinks about people. That's it. Two categories of people. So we're going to see that and be reminded from the Apostle Paul, we need to first and foremost look at every human being made in the image of God in one of two categories. They either know Jesus Christ or they don't. And Paul uses a lot of different metaphors to describe people in those two categories. And one of the metaphors in verses 8 through 10 we're going to look, like, look at is that Paul calls Christians light and he calls unbelievers darkness. So depending upon your view of Jesus Christ, you are either light or darkness. And that's where George Lucas got it right. So are you on the dark side or the light side? So let's go ahead and look at uh, our passage at hand here, walking in the light, and the Christian is to walk in the light or live life consistent with light. And let's dig a little deeper to see exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about there. And I came up with uh, four truths that I divided this passage into that I want us to think about and take away and apply to our lives four truths regarding being light in a sinful world. Because last week we looked at just one verse, and that was verse 7. And where the Apostle Paul commanded Christians not to be partakers with unbelievers, not to be partners with unbelievers, not to formally engage with, at their level, unbelievers in this world. 
And we talked a little bit about the implications of that practically. But here's the balance. Yeah, we're not supposed to engage formally as partners in a like-minded manner in the enterprises and lifestyle of unbelievers in the world. But on the other hand, the balance is we do need to interact with unbelievers. And the way we interact with them is that we need to be light. That's the practical application. That is the biblical balance. Because you could go to extremes. We talked about that. Paul says don't partner with unbelievers. And the extremes like we talked about, one extreme is that people think, okay, unbelievers have the cooties and I can't go anywhere near them. Therefore, I'm going to totally isolate myself from the world. And we said last week, Paul's not talking about isolation. He's talking about separation. There's a difference. So God doesn't want us to be totally isolated from unbelievers in the world. He doesn't want isolation. He doesn't want us to be cloistering ourselves in little holy huddles, extricating ourselves from the world so that we never interact and never rub shoulders with sinners. That's not God's ideal. And there are plenty of Christians throughout church history who have understood this command that way and have done a disservice to the command of Christ and the Gospel and the Great Commission. And they literally retreated from the world and hid away from unbelievers. In overreaction. So that's one extreme, is just total isolation from unbelievers. God doesn't want us to do that. And then we talked about the other extreme is where people who are abusing their liberties as Christians, and not only do they mingle with the world, they kind of hang out and party and practice the things along with the world and use it as an excuse. Well, I'm trying to evangelize them as they engage in the sinful practices of the world. So we need to avoid two extremes. So what's our relationship with Unbelievers, it is to be light. Walk is light in the world. So let's go ahead and look at what the Apostle Paul says specifically how we're to do that. So let's look at point number one that I've got there, and that is the transformation that made us children of light. The transformation that made us children of light. Like I said, Paul characterizes believers as Christians as light in this passage. He calls us light. So if you're a Christian this morning, you're light. Now that's a good thing. This is a great metaphor. It is rich, it is deep. Uh, we can't exhaust it in one day or it, it takes several sermons to even talk about the implications spiritually of the fact that Christians are light. But it's a beautiful metaphor. But as Christians, we are light. And there was a transformation that took place that made us light. But look at the beginning of verse 8. The Apostle Paul tells us, reminds us Christians, he says, for separate yourself from the unbelieving world because or for you were formerly darkness. But now you are light. Present tense, in the Lord. Two main things I want to highlight here. He says, formerly Christian, you were darkness. Darkness is used all throughout Scripture consistently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes it's used in a literal sense, like literally in Genesis 1, the Hebrew word for darkness there refers to the darkness at the time of creation, the lack of light. So sometimes it's used literally a physical or a lack of physical light. But more often, and particularly in the New Testament, the word for darkness is used metaphorically or religiously or spiritually, I should say, to represent sin. Darkness in the New Testament, for the most part, it represents sin. Sinfulness, really the domain of Satan, because Satan is called the prince of darkness, the king of darkness, the ruler of darkness. And everything else that flows out of his kingdom is darkness. So that's how darkness is being used here, and that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Christian, did you realize? He's just reminding us, you're light now, but you used to be darkness. And notice, literally, he doesn't say you are in. You used to be in the dark. I think that's what the NIV says. That's not correct. 
The NASB has it right here. It says, you were darkness. Not just you used to be in it, because you can be in darkness and not be darkness yourself. But the text says, Christian, you used to be darkness itself. In other words, you were evil. And you were, you know what? You were of your father, the devil. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 8. You were darkness before you got saved. So that's a great reminder. And primarily, darkness metaphorically is used in two ways. Uh, it's used to speak of moral darkness. That's how we live. So moral darkness is how we live. That's wickedness, evil behavior, sinfulness. Dirty deeds, if you will. So that's moral darkness, but it's also used regularly of intellectual darkness. That's how we think. So it's darkness of how we live and how we think. I mean, Scripture refers, uses it over and over again in those two ways. Here, listen to this familiar verse. You know John 3.16. But not many people go on to memorize John 3.19. And here's where the word darkness is used with respect morally, how sinful people live. John 3.19 says this, And this is the judgment, that if you don't believe in Jesus, if you reject Christ, this is the judgment, that the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world, and people, or sinners, loved the darkness, or their sin, agape, they loved their sin rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. They love darkness. They love sin. That's moral evil it's talking about. And then just one example of intellectual evil that darkness refers to is Romans chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul goes on to talk about people who don't believe in Christ, have rejected Him, have rejected God, and because of a lack of belief in the Creator and in His truth, as a result, there are consequences, there is punishment, and here's one of the consequences. For even though unbelievers, they knew God, the fact that He was the Creator and He's given them a conscience, they did not honor Him or thank Him as the Creator or give Him thanks. And, they, and as a result, they became futile or obtuse in their thinking. Their thinking was distorted because of a lack of faith. And their foolish heart was darkened. That's all talking about their thinking process, and really their ability to understand spiritual truth. An unbeliever cannot accurately understand spiritual truth without the help of God because of their unbelief. They are darkened in their understanding. In other words, they are spiritually blind. And that's what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot understand the gospel without Christ's help. So that's what darkness is is, and that's what Paul's talking about here. If you're an unbeliever, you are in darkness. You're in moral darkness, and you're in intellectual darkness. And you know what, Christian? You used to be that way. I used to be that way. Lost, spiritually blind in darkness. That's the bad news. The good news is, but now, Christian, you are light, present tense. You're light. You've changed. You're a new person. You're a new creation. Praise the Lord. And light is used very specifically all throughout the Bible consistently. And again, in the New Testament, it's used primarily, metaphorically speaking, light. For example, uh, and again, it's used uh, for moral in a moral way and in an intellectual way. And light, morally speaking, refers to holiness or purity. That's why First John says that God is light. 
And in Him, there is no darkness at all. What that means is God is light. God is holy, perfectly sinless. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. In God, there is no sin or, or evil whatsoever. So light refers to moral purity or holiness. And God is saying, Christian, you are light. You are pure. You are sinless. Uh-oh, that's not true of me. I know me. I live with me. How can I, as a sinner, be pure? Well, my position in Christ, I am pure. Not in and of myself, but because I'm a Christian, because Christ saved me, because God's righteousness was transferred over or imputed to me. As God looks down from heaven, because I've trusted in Christ, as a result, I am light. That's how he sees me. So it's referring to your position in Christ. And then light also refers to our intellectual ability or capacity in a metaphorical way. And when it's used that way, it speaks of, intellectually, it's speaking of truth. Light means truth. And Jesus said, he, was, he goes, I am the light of the world. He said that three times in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so over and over again, Scripture uses light to refer to truth, to God's revelation, to God's illumination, to true spiritual understanding, the ability to know the deep, mysterious things of God. That's what light means. So, again, it's our living and our thinking. So as a Christian, because you're light, you have the ability to understand and know truth, and you have the ability to live in a way that pleases God with holiness. So Christian, be encouraged. You are light even though you used to be darkness in sin under the leadership of Satan himself. Well, wow, that's awesome. How did I become light when I was darkness? Well, here's how the change took place. Great verse, Colossians 1.13. I don't know if you know it or not, but you should be familiar with it. If you're a Christian, this is how you got changed from the domain of darkness and became light. It was in Colossians 1.13 where the Apostle Paul says, For he, that is Christ, because he's the Savior, because he rose again from the dead, because he's the Lord, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. That's Satan's domain, the domain of sin, fallenness, evil, wickedness, unbelief, spiritual blindness. For Christ, past tense, delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us, Christians, to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That is the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of holiness and purity and knowing God. That's when it happened. It happened at salvation. The moment you truly believed in the gospel and understood who Jesus was and what He did on the cross for you and you put your faith in Him in a legitimate way, then you became a Christian in that very moment of time. You got saved. You were born again. And a supernatural spiritual transaction literally took place. You were transferred from the kingdom of Satan and his darkness into the kingdom of God's glorious light, into the kingdom of his Son at the time of your spiritual adoption. That's when you became light Christian. So if you're a Christian, it was a historical event that happened at one point in time. So that's a great truth. So that's the transformation that made us children of light. That's how we became children of light. Let's go on to point number two that Paul makes. The obligation to walk as children of light. The obligation. You've been changed. You've been made light. Now there's an obligation from God. There's responsibilities we have as we represent God. And that's the second part of verse 8. And he says, okay, Christian, now that you're no longer darkness but light, walk as children of light. Walk. That's the main command here. That is the main verb in this passage. We need to walk 
as children of light. This verb here, look at, keep your eye on Ephesians there. Paul used this uh, verb repeatedly. Look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 1. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, beg you, Christian, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. If you're a Christian, act like one. That's all he was saying. Christians should act like Christians. Did you know that? It's amazing that the Apostle Paul had to remind the Ephesian Christians who've been around for 20 years and saved that since you're a Christian, you need to actually act and live like one. Apparently, there are people who call themselves Christians who don't think that's necessary. Paul said it was. Uh, look at verse 7, chapter 4. But to each one of us, grace was given a court. Oops, wrong verse. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Oh, yeah, it was 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, Christian, and affirm together with the Lord that you, Christian, walk no longer as the Gentiles. Don't walk like you're an unsafe person because you're, an unsafe, because you're a safe person. So walk accordingly. Just be consistent with who you are. That's all he's saying. Chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love, just like Christ. If you claim to know Christ, live like Christ. That's all he's saying. And then finally in verse 15 of chapter 5, he's going to say it again. He just keeps repeating this. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Well, what does walk mean? Well, walk in the New Testament particularly, even in the Old Testament, it just refers to a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's a habitual pattern of the way you conduct your life. That's what a walk is. How's your walk in the Lord doing? How is your walk? That means all the patterns and behaviors and habits that represent you and characterize who you are as you live from day to day. And the walk implies that the Christian life is a day-to-day-to-day-to-day ongoing continual event with continuity for a long period of time. The Christian walk. So it's talking about our pattern of behavior. It's talking about a lifestyle. That's the easiest way to summarize it. So we've got a lifestyle that needs to represent Christ. This verb is also an imperative, which means it's a command. It is obligatory. It is not an option for the Christian. We need to walk in Christ-likeness. This verb is also active, which means, active voice, which means we are responsible for doing it. You know, historically, for the last 2,000 years, there have been fringes of Christian groups called pietists or pacifists in their Christian life. And pietism, formally, says that, well, I can't really do anything. God has to do it all in my life. So I'm just going to sit back and coast, and when the Spirit moves me, then I'll, I'll do something and obey. And all these commands in Scripture, oh, I'm not obligated to obey them because I can't do them anyway. Because, it's, you know, it's only Christ and God that can do them. Therefore, so you just put yourself in cruise control, and it's really just an excuse for life for not obeying God's commands. That's pietism. It's been condemned all throughout church history. But there have been pietistic Christians living in every era, era of the Christian walk. And here, because Paul is saying this is active voice, no, this is your individual responsibility. You are responsible before God as an individual to fulfill the Christian life and walk accordingly. This verse is also present tense, which means it's an ongoing, regular, expected pattern of behavior. It doesn't stop. It keeps going and going and going. And just the meaning of the verb, walk. What does walk mean? Walk implies you're going somewhere, doesn't it? You're not stagnant. You're not isolated. You're not frozen in time. The fact that as a Christian you're supposed to have a walk means you're supposed to be going somewhere. You are supposed to make progress in your Christian life. That is important because there are those who would tell us the goal of Christianity is just to get people saved. They got saved. They're in. They're not going to hell. They're going to heaven. Good. And we're done. Hands off. We don't need to touch them anymore. That's false. The Christian life isn't just... It's not like when a, a, a mommy has a baby. Plop! There's the baby. Woo, it's born. Celebrate. And then everybody goes home and leaves the baby there to fend for itself. 
No, you are hoping that the baby is going to grow and mature and be nurtured and make progress and become something in life and productive. Well, it's the same in the Christian life. We need to have a walk. It is progressive. It is incremental. It is ongoing. It is forward. It is productive. The implication is God wants us to be productive in this life as Christians. That's why in Ephesians 2.10 we saw first there was salvation and then Paul says you were created in Christ Jesus in eternity past with works that God wanted you to accomplish in this life. In eternity past, God looked at every Christian that was going to be a believer, every person that was going to be saved, and God had a plan for you. He had works in this life He wanted you to fulfill on His behalf to further His kingdom. And it takes a lifetime to do it. The Great Commission, if you were to ask people, what's the Great Commission that Jesus gave the church before He left? What's the Great Commission? Some people will say, well, the Great Commission was... Oh, the Great Commission is to evangelize and get everybody saved. Surprise, you know what? That is not the Great Commission. (gasps) Are you serious? That's heresy for you to say that. No, that is not the Great Commission. That is one-third of the part of the Great Commission. One-third of the part of the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, this is very important, very basic, very fundamental, but we need to get it down. What is the Great Commission? Jesus told His disciples who were to start, plan, maintain, and grow and perpetuate His church that the Great Commission, the mandate for every believer of every age, it was threefold. And the main thing was, the heart of it was, you are to make disciples. That's the verb in the passage. The goal of every Christian is to make disciples. And then Jesus said, and you do that in three ways. And he used three participles to explain it, how you do that. How do you make disciples for Jesus Christ? And Jesus said, well, first there's going. Going, a very specific word. You know what that means? That means going out into the world, infiltrating the world, penetrating the world, getting to know your neighbor, Fred, who's not just keeping his lawn nice, finding out what his spiritual status is before God. Going, it's evangelizing, penetrating lost society and planting seeds of the gospel. Going. Evangelism, we would call it. So... What's the Great Commission? The Great Commission is to make disciples, and it starts with going or evangelism. That's only, that's only phase one. Did you know there's two other phases? Phase number two. So you go, going. Always, it's a participle, going. It's all, it should be a lifestyle. Always going, everywhere you go. You know you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ, Christian, wherever you go. To the restaurant, to the supermarket, at your job, in your school, in your club, with your sports team. Wherever you go, going, planting seeds. And if you can't give the full-blown gospel everywhere you go, at least you'd be planting seeds, right? Planting seeds, being a good testimony. Maybe saying one sentence that's a blessing to that person. Seed planting, as Walt Heine talked to us about before he left. That totally, that was the main point I took away from Dr. Heine. You know what? I'm not going to try to be uh, Billy Graham in every conversation I ever have with every person I meet. I'm just going to be a seed planter. Johnny Appleseed. A couple weeks ago, I was up by a seminary where I'm just teaching a class part-time right now, just one day a week, and I stopped by a thrift store. This is just a side note, but it was kind of interesting. And a, a thrift store, and there was a Denver Bronco uh, Terrell Davis jersey official hanging out there. and been hanging out there for weeks, and I thought, nobody's going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. I'm a Denver Broncos fan. So I got out, walked over to the thrift store. It was a hole in the wall. And uh, so I was asking the guy who owned the place, how much it was, and he said it was 15 bucks. I thought, man, that's a deal. This is like $95 in the store. 
15 bucks, I'm going to buy it. So, I, so this guy starts asking me questions, peppering me with all kinds of questions. So what are you doing? Where are you from? He's probably in his 70s, retired guy probably, and this is his livelihood, this hole in the wall of a thrift store, and he starts asking me questions. And he said, so where are you going? What are you doing in this neck of the woods? He could tell I was not from that neighborhood uh, as I was wearing my tie, and it was a you know, totally different kind of neighborhood. And I said, yeah, actually, I'm teaching a, a class up at this church up here. And he goes, you teach, oh, you teaching the gospel? I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, so you're Johnny Appleseed. I said, well, yeah, I'm Johnny Appleseed. I plant seeds for Jesus. Praise the Lord, brother. Anyway, that was just a side note. So anyway, that was just a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so what is the gospel? Making, or the commission, make disciples first by going, and secondly, Jesus says, by baptizing, baptizing them. Who do you baptize? You baptize Christians. You baptize people who have been born again. You baptize believers. So Jesus, it's very clear. You don't baptize somebody so their sins can get forgiven. You baptize somebody whose sins have already been forgiven. What Jesus is saying is you're going, step number one, you're sharing the gospel. The implication is people are going to listen to the gospel, they're going to believe the gospel, and they're going to get saved. They're going to put faith in Christ. So step number two is taking those people who actually responded to the truth of the gospel and you are baptizing them as a public witness that their soul has been changed. And baptism has been given as an ordinance to the church. So Jesus is saying the church should be in the regular ongoing basis and practice of baptizing people who have been saved, formally recognizing people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ through the formal ordinance of baptism. And that's talking about formal assimilation into the body of Christ, formal assimilation into the local church. And the word church, ecclesia, when it's used, most of the time the word ecclesia in the New Testament refers to the local church. So Jesus is saying step number two to making disciples is evangelizing and then finding out who the believers are and then obedience to Jesus Christ, baptizing them and then formally assimilating them into the local church so that they can use their gifts and that they can be edified and nurtured and grow in Christ and contribute to the edification of the body of Christ and further the kingdom of God. That's only step number two. Because salvation and baptism are one-time events. Then there's the last, the third part of the Great Commission. The main thing is to make disciples. You do it by evangelizing, then baptizing those who have been saved. And then step number three, Jesus said, the last thing in making disciples, Jesus said, and then teaching them, another participle. Teaching them what? Teaching them all things that I have commanded. Everything. Teaching them the full counsel of the Word of God. Can you do that in a week or in a ten-week membership class? I don't think so. That is going to take the rest of your life as a Christian. You can live for 50 years after you become a Christian. You're never going to master and learn everything that Jesus taught us. That is lifelong teaching, lifelong discipleship. So it's not just get them saved. That's not the Great Commission. That's only one part of it. As a matter of fact, we give most of our time and energy to individual Christians to the, the third part, teaching that's ongoing discipleship and mentoring and teaching in Sunday school class and teaching from the pulpit and in Bible studies and one-on-one -on -one and house-to-house -house and wherever we go. That's the lifelong project of the Christian. All that just to say that third part about teaching and growing, and we're all learning and growing and teaching. I, I am learning. I need to be taught. I am being taught. I am growing in the Lord. I have grown tremendously in my own spiritual life in the nine months that this church has existed. I've learned a lot from other saints. 
I've learned a lot from God and His Holy Spirit. I've learned new things about the truth of the Word of God that I've studied for 20 years. So we all need to be continually growing as Christians and maturing. So that is the Great Commission. But all that just to say, this ongoing teaching and learning for the rest of your life, that is the Christian walk, and that's what Paul's talking about. We all need to have a walk. We all need to be going somewhere. We all need to be making progress in the Lord. And it's a lifelong pursuit. That is the Christian walk. So going back to Ephesians chapter 5 now. The second part of that point, the obligation to walk as children of light. The second, first part was, well, what does walk mean? And then, well, how do we walk? How do we walk as we integrate with the lost, dark, sinful world? And that's, he's very specific there. He says, when you walk, that's the command. You need to walk as children of light. You need to walk as light. That's how we interact with the world. We need to be like light. What does light do, by the way? It does. Light shines. Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, you're the light of the world and you know what? You need to shine. You need to shine to the rest of the world. And if somebody takes a peck measure or an empty half of a coconut and sticks it over the candle, the candle does what? It dies. It doesn't shine. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't hide. Shine. Raise it up. Emanate. You know, light does, light does two main things. Light illuminates and it exposes. One is positive, one is negative. That's what we need to do as Christians. We need to illuminate that's the positive element of light. Illumination brings revelation. The revelation of God. It reflects the character and glory of God. That's a positive thing. Light. It helps us see, doesn't it? We turn the light on so we can see. It gives us direction in life. It helps us. It aids us. It assists us. As you go into the world, you need to illuminate the world for unbelievers. To be an aid to them. To be a representative of God Almighty Himself. To be a representative of what Jesus is really like. Giving them light in a positive way. Did you know that because most people in the world believe in Jesus? They do. Most of the religions claim to believe in Jesus. But the problem is they believe the wrong thing about Jesus. And that's the most important thing we need to share with people as we go into the world because Jesus said he was light. So we need to reflect his light and what we need to give to people as we go out because light goes out, doesn't it? Light penetrates, light infiltrates, light is aggressive. I was putting in my air conditioner wall unit last week took me forever. I'm a lousy mechanic. But anyway, or handyman, spent all this time and I thought I sealed it beautifully and then I got the caulking gun and whoosh, which is great for a multitude of sins, caulking. Um, and then I, I finished it about at nighttime, 9.30, the sun was long gone. And I thought, oh, that's beautiful. I, I sealed everything. It's airtight. This puppy is sealed hermetically. So... And then the next day I wake up and I'm coming down the stairs and it's 7 a.m. and there's just all kinds of light shining through the wall where I was working, exposing all of my inadequacies and errors and whatever else and illumining me and enlightening me as to where I need to go back with that caulking gun. So it's very helpful. So light is helpful. It illuminates. All this air and bugs coming in, I blew it. So light is positive. It is illuminating and then it's negative. It exposes. And actually next week we're going to look, if we get that far, at how light as we're light in the world, we need to be exposing evilness and wickedness and sin in the world. But Paul's emphasis here is we need to be positive light. We need to be bringing revelation, illumination, information to people about truth and about holiness and about purity. And that's his emphasis here. And I want to read Matthew 5. Um, I, I alluded to it, but listen to Jesus in his own words about us as Christians, about how we're supposed to be light in the world. And by the way, I'm going to end on this 
point here. Next week we're going to pick up uh, part two. There's just too many important things to address here to skim over it. Uh, this is the Lord Jesus himself talking about believers who are to be light in the world. In Matthew 5:14, he said, You, Christian, or you, believer, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand where it's supposed to be exposing everything and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men and do it in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we talked about separating from the sinful world. Remember separation? So at the same time, you can be separated from the world and at the same time infiltrate the world. Did you know that? Because that's what light does. You flash a flashlight and the light, the quality of the light, it remains intact in terms of its individual identity. It doesn't assimilate into the other particles. But it goes everywhere. That's what Christians need to do. We need to go everywhere. Infiltrate, penetrate society. Maintaining, preserving our character, godly, godly character I should say. And not mixing in, getting watered down in the world. Jesus did that, didn't he? Jesus was separated from sinners in one respect, but he was the master of infiltrating sinful society, wasn't he? As a matter of fact, Jesus was known at the end of his ministry as a friend of sinners. That was actually a phrase of derision that he was mocked for. He was a friend of sinners. Why? Because he was seen hanging out with sinful people. He would have actually have dinner with tax collectors, Gentiles, and prostitutes. That was seen as abhorrent among some of the Jewish community. But that's what Jesus did. He interacted. He infiltrated society. That's what light does. It infiltrates. It penetrates. It illumines. It brings truth. And that's what we need to do. So Jesus mingled with unbelievers. He interacted with unbelievers. He engaged with sinners. He rubbed shoulders with them. He was being light. We need to do the same. We can't be isolationists in an overreactionary manner. But here's the balance to that truth. Jesus did interact with sinners and mingled with them. But you know what? Jesus did it on His terms every single time. Interact with sinners, but on His terms. He never compromised on that. Zacchaeus, you, down here, your house, dinner, 5 o'clock. <laughs> Those were Jesus' terms. Always. It's always on Jesus. So you know how we need to interact with a dark, sinful, unbelieving world? We need to do it on, on our terms? No. On Jesus' terms. That's how you interact with an unbelieving world and at the same time be separated for them because Jesus had parameters. He had clear expectations. Yeah, sure, He uh, interacted with the sinful woman, but you know what He told her? Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Those are His terms. Those are clear boundaries and parameters. I'm not going to compromise and cave in, acquiesce, condone, justify her sinful behavior. No, it was on His terms. Go and sin no more. And there were other times where he inter interacted with unbelievers and even his disciples, he told, to go and infiltrate two by two, preach all over, but he gave them clear parameters. You know what? And if somebody mocks you, doesn't listen to you, rejects you, insults you, rejects Christ, turn from them, leave their house, shake the dust off your feet, and leave their, their presence. Those are Jesus' terms. That's how we interact with the unbelieving world. Jesus said, you know, don't throw your pearls before the swine. Those are Jesus' terms. So we need to do the same as Christians in a sinful world. We need to penetrate society, infiltrate wherever we go, being ambassadors for Christ, and not compromising, acquiescing to the sinfulness of the world, but having clear convictions about what our boundaries are 
interacting with them always on Jesus' terms. Amen? Amen. And with that, let's go ahead and we're going to pick up part two of this on walking in the light next week. And right now, let me close this in prayer before we sing some more and honor the Lord. Father, we do thank you for this day and the privilege to gather as a church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the command and reminder that we are light because Jesus made us light. God, you made us light. You have forgiven us of our sin in Christ Jesus the Lord because he died and got punished for our sin and because he rose from the dead. And he is alive today. And that's the only reason we're light. We are light because you are the sun and we are the moon and we simply reflect your light. And God, in a practical way, remind us that we're light, but remind us of how we are to best reflect your light in a sinful world and that we would always do it according to Jesus' demands, expectations, and boundaries so that we can be a wonderful testimony for you, for those who need to hear about you and that they also might come to the light. And we just ask that you'd bless our time of fellowship and the opportunity we have maybe to meet some, some new folks and enjoy our meal together and that you would go before us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.